but I think it's about investing into that next generation, which is what I'd like to be able to do, be it through foraging or through, you know, going spearfishing with them to then putting them through wine training. Or if there's something that I could do to share my knowledge or share my experiences, then that's what I would like to be doing in my own sort of space eventually. One of the things that we absolutely love at the Dirty Linen Food Podcast is celebrating the next generation of talent in the world of food and drink. Today we are diving in and chatting to up-and-coming superstar Sarah Cremona. Sarah is a chef at Moak Dining in Flinders on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. She has really smashed out so many awards in her short career and it is a thrill to chat to you today Sarah. Thank you a pleasure being here speaking with you as well Danny. Ah, it's really great um, first of all tell us a little bit about Moak and your role there at the moment. Yeah for sure so I'm down in in the deep peninsula um, in Flinders at Moak Dining um, with head chef and owner Michael Cole so I'm the sous chef there and we've got a an ever-changing menu. Um, it changes every week, so it keeps us very honest and open and always on our toes. So it keeps me out of mischief as well. So it's a good thing. <laughs> Sounds like a good thing. I think the first time that I heard of you was when you were the um, Host Plus Hospitality Scholarship Award winner in 2022. You, you, I, we actually, I was going to say, we actually crossed paths earlier than that as well, Danny. Oh, you'll when, have to uh, remind me now. I was going to say the dessert degustation that Pierre Roloff used to do. Ah, were you working with Pierre? I was a part of the selection group that got to do their own dessert for an, uh, the uh, dessert pop-up that he does once every kind of blue moon with a couple of pe- up-and-coming chefs or pastry chefs. Ah, I say. Was, it the, was it in Brunswick? No, no, no. It was um, at the Essential Ingredient in Paran. Okay. Well, tell me what you made with Pierre because we've had Pierre on the podcast when we did a series around people who left hospitality to do other interesting things. And Pierre, as I'm sure you know, is now a fireman. So, he certainly had a big 180. Um, yes. Tell me tell me about that. Oh, gosh. So, it was a, a riff on the idea of a Jerusalem artichoke as a Jerusalem artichoke that you would find in the dirt, but it was as a pastry course. So, it was with like a chocolate soil, miso, um, a chestnut uh, cream in it, and then the actual hull of the Jerusalem artichoke had been hulled out and dehydrated and candied. Oh, Sarah, I totally remember that yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> I And that's so, yeah, well, um, we can't edit around this, but we're just going to have to say that I just did not put that together with the rest of the story of yours that I know. So my apologies. But, yeah, I, abs- I absolutely remember even where I was sitting when I ate that and how fun and surprising it was. Um yeah, and Jerusalem artichokes do have that sweet, nutty caramelization that you can coax out of them, and you really achieved it with, um, yeah, with that dessert. So there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, okay, let's take a different tack because I guess what I wanted to start with, and we can start at that point as well, is that you seem to be a chef who puts yourself up for all kinds of opportunities and challenges. Um, So, yeah, tell us about the way you've, um, I suppose, forged a career and did different pathways for yourself as a chef. Yeah, so I, I didn't actually start as a chef. I 
used to work in corporate in you know that that wonderful taboo department called human resources um and i was living for the weekend um within one of the top tier banks and i was doing that wonderful rat race and you know when when i wasn't actually at work i was going to you know those up and coming venues or you know trying to find these certain chefs that did these really cool dishes and because of the flavors that they were doing and i think from there i was with a lady who was mentoring me and there was this opportunity to kind of take a take a break from being in hr and uh going to a cookery course on the other side of the world called Ballymaloo which was in regional just south of Ireland sorry in regional Ireland south of Cork um and it was this paddock to plate philosophy where you lived on site and you were doing everything from organic organic crop rotation through to dealing with their micro dairy on site and dealing with raw unpasteurized milk and then their sourdough stream and then when you weren't doing all of that you were actually in a kitchen cooking for three months so that's kind of where it all started and I suppose from there I just have taken that approach of if you I suppose if you're going to fail fail fast and that's I think been the the way in which I've approached so much of my career of what's the worst that could happen and I think sometimes looking back on it you kind of go oh that was a bit of naivety on that situation or I think I've bitten off more than I could potentially chew um pardon the pun and um you kind of just and I think a bit of grit and probably a little bit of stubbornness as well in the mix and you just kind of go all right let's just take one step in front of the other and you know just see where it all goes or or, you know this you know age of old mantra and I think even that kind of dogmatic um, competitiveness that I innately have which is oh how hard could it be and then you kind of get, get elbows deep in it and then you go oh this is way harder than what I thought and or it's like a lot of kudos needs to be done for these people that can do this sort of thing and you kind of go all right I've got myself into this let's let's work through it so I suppose that's kind of been the approach that I've kind of had and to um, you know, it's easy to ask for forgiveness rather than permission sometimes, and that's gotten me into a few kind of um, hair-raising, kind of teeth-gritting moments where, you know, the first first kitchen commercial kitchen experience I'd ever had was going to the number one restaurant in the world. So I've kind of done it all backwards, so to speak, where you'd normally go and start your apprenticeship and then try and work into a stage. I kind of went from a three-month cookery course um, into the number one restaurant in the world with this approach of, well, if I'm going to do it, I may as well just try. And if I fail, then I know that that's where my threshold is and I just kind of work backwards from that. So, yeah. Uh, and was that a little restaurant called Noma? It was indeed. It was indeed. <laughs> Tell me about that. Huge learning curve. Huge. Everything about it from start to finish. And I think it's little things where you learn – the focus and the discipline and the respect, but you don't realise the physicality that goes into it either. Um, having come from corporate human resources where you work maybe, you know, not quite nine till five, but a much more civilised sort of working pattern to, you know, a fine dining chef at one of the the pinnacle of what it means to be in fine dining and you kind of go, what do you mean we're now going to do this Saturday night project at 3 a.m. in the morning? It's like, this is what you do. Like, And you kind of are around these like-minded people that are crazily um, and fervently passionate about what they do, and it's infectious. Um, 
and I kind of came out of that whole experience going, I think I want to be a chef and I don't know if that makes me a sadist or a masochist and kind of doing it all backwards, but you kind of, you have to love it and you have to love that whole idea of being hospitable because it's a service-based industry really. And I think, you know, having had that as my starting point and those foundations to then go and do an apprenticeship, you kind of, and I think that hindsight of being that little bit older, you kind of approach things a little bit differently because you don't have time on your side. You're not the youngest, you're not 18 years old and you can push through it with a lack of sleep. You kind of go, I need to find a faster way of doing this and a smarter way of doing this because I can't physically do what an 18 year old can do so you kind of have to be a little bit more um, judicious as well sometimes so what kind of choices have you made you think perhaps are a little bit more strategic than you might have been if you felt like you know you had um, I guess more time to build a career Uh, not sleep Um, that's probably been the biggest one during my apprenticeship so when I wasn't at work, I would be on leave, but on leave meant that I was overseas doing a stage off the back of a cooking competition that I won, or I was taking annual leave not to go on a holiday, but to use it for pastry courses that I was putting myself through because I wanted to be more well-rounded and being able to um, hold my own in the pastry section as well as in the main kitchen or um, I'd be going to a butcher at the wee hours of the morning and then finishing that and then going straight into work and then working during my apprenticeship um, and doing those hours. So, um, yeah, just haven't really stopped is probably that biggest factor that I've kind of look looking back on it can kind of see that I've just always always up to mischief for better or for worse in some way shape or form (laughs) (laughs) I can hear that that steeliness and that ambition that that sort of competitive drive in you but I wonder what it is about food and restaurants that really hooked you in like what is it that grabbed you so so hard and wouldn't let you go I think it's the food and I think it's that whole idea of that community and breaking bread with someone and seeing something um, being expressed in a certain way like for example seeing what um, you know different iterations or interpretations of a classic dish could look like like duck a l'orange and then seeing what sepia did with um, you know their their way of which they were doing duck a l'orange and it was a completely revamped way of heightening it and seeing it in a totally different lens so yeah I think that's kind of where it all started and I think also um, being in my early 20s and um, having that ability to be sport for choice for really nice wine and everything else you kind of go oh um, you know like what do you mean that this is you know a shadow nerf to pop I thought this was just a normal you know glass of wine because you don't know what you don't know And I think you kind of have that, I think now looking back on it, you kind of go, well, these were just such defining moments that kind of all marinated and made this wonderful mix of why I wanted to be in the industry and why I, you know, fervently love it and absolutely adore it. And I'm, you know, wildly passionate about it, but I think in some aspects beyond frustrated with some of the status quos of it as well. Well, let's talk about those because, I mean, one thing one thing that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you, you talk about your endless drive and, you know, you haven't slept in however many years or <laughs> whatever it is. Um, 
I mean, there's so much talk in the industry about balance these days and that people shouldn't be asking apprentices to, you know, do those crazy hours um, to run themselves into the ground. Of course, if somebody, you know, wants to do all the extracurricular stuff themselves, like, you know, um, that's a choice. But, I mean, how do, you, how do you look at people who are coming up behind you and this idea of, um, yeah, finding that balance between excellence, endeavour and, um, and any semblance of balance? I, I think the thing that I, I've been really fortunate and really lucky with for finding has been that whole um, finding someone and something that keeps you grounded. And I think for me that's probably been my saving grace in a lot of times where I've had voices of reason through mentors and family that have kind of gone, this is the point where you need to stop. Tomorrow will still be there, but right now you just need to just put the book down. You need to learn how to switch off. You need to like just not be constantly tinkering in your kitchen. You just need to find other things outside of you know, what it means to be in a kitchen that actually fulfill you as well because that then helps give you that balance. And I think that's in some ways that's what keeps you sane as well with how demanding it is in a kitchen that, you know, there's there's life outside of the kitchen as well at times, which, um, you know, which I have been guilty of forgetting as well. So it's, you know, pot calling kettle black in some instances in that one. <laughs> Are you good at listening to those voices that tell you, say, Sarah, come on. <laughs> I'm better than where I was, that's for sure. But it's, um, you know, and that's, that's a part of the growth and the journey. And, and I think some of it's also, you know, approaching it and kind of going, well, I'm not, I'm not in my 20s anymore. I actually do need X amount of sleep and I do need that, you know, that time outside of work. And I think that's the thing that I've been really enjoying is um, what we do at Moke, which is a compressed work week. And I think, you know, having that split of four days on, three days off really allows you to decompress from work and then still have enough time in the weekend that you're not just literally waking up, putting washing through the washing machine, through the dryer, washing your bed sheets, and then maybe getting five, six hours to yourself. You've actually got a weekend still. Um, so work is work and when you're there you're present and you work hard but you've got a day to kind of collect yourself and then two days to still have a weekend and I think you know it might be one of the solutions moving forward or at least an option of ways in which we can get a better balance within the industry as well. And Sarah tell me about some of the other status quos that have been frustrating for you. Um, I think it's more looking at the arcane operating model um, that, you know, has traditionally and historically existed between front of house and back of house. Um, And I think there's that really hard line that I've seen as a chef where chefs draw between front of house and back of house. And I think given the way that our, you know, society is and our economy and the way that people are spending and what, you know, what we even do in high-end fine dining and what I've been a part of is where you start to kind of merge those two realms together. Um, And I think part of it and, you know, being a little bit spoilt for choice is, um, you know, having been able to do it historically at Noma where we used to do plate drops for customers, but then also at Moak where it's I've, 
you know, been pouring wines and been doing front of house shifts and that sort of thing to round up my own understanding of what actually is involved on the other side, so to speak, on the other side of the pass that we um, we sometimes forget because it's all about the food and all about the cooking. But I think we kind of forget that at the end of the day, if we don't have a customer or a guest, I should say, if we don't have a guest, then what we do is obsolete. There's no, like, you don't just cook for yourself. You cook because it's wanting to share something or to create nostalgia or to conjure up something. And for people to go out dining, it's about being able to have an experience. And I think that's sometimes where we forget that there's so much more to it than just that dish that we're putting up as well sometimes. Yeah, interesting. And, I mean, do you feel like that same, I guess, misunderstanding happens the other way, like from front of house to the kitchen? I think everyone's guilty of it and no one's completely (laughs) innocent by all means. But I think it's also, you know, where we are in this weird like weird current state where labor costs are so high and staffing and and everything we've got to we've got to find i think lateral solutions to the way that we move forward uh, you know does does the traditional role of a chef still exist or do we need to be a little bit more of a jack of all trades do we need to be able to you know ba- like basic things like if you were at home and you're cooking for your family and you see someone's plates empty like why not just take it as you go past? Why, you know, why not be a part of a holistic team rather than just the kitchen team or, you know, vice versa um, with front of house dipping into helping, you know, uh, the kitchen. And I think we've got a really nice melding of those two worlds at Moak at the moment. So it's really cool to see how you can kind of laterally problem solve some I guess some very historical operating systems that have just been there since, you know, the dawn of, you know, uh, contemporary cooking with like the likes of Escoffier and the hierarchy that he brought through. Mm, It's really interesting. I mean, and I suppose what you're pointing to is that, you know, the realities of of costs and staffing and, of course, it's, you know, you're in a regional area, it's – generally harder to staff those regional restaurants. So, it's a a solution that you're sort of stepping your way towards that's born of necessity in some ways, which I suppose, you know, is how some of the the best, you know, the best um, solutions to problems often come about. It's, um, oh, look how this, this actually works. One thing I wanted to ask you about is as part of your Host Plus Hospitality Scholarship, uh, you got to head over to New Zealand and spend some time with Vaughan Mabey at uh, Amersfield. I haven't had the pleasure of going there, but I've been watching that restaurant closely on the socials. Um, could you tell us a bit about it and about your time there? Yeah, for sure. Um, Vaughn Marby and his team at Amersfield are um, a lot of fun, a lot, a lot of fun. And it just it makes me smile like crazy just thinking about the time that I had there back in May with Vaughn and his um, team and they were so generous. Um, I, I was really lucky to spend three weeks there and for me, Vaughan's philosophy is very akin to my own with wanting to be in symbiosis with the wild. Um, so his approach is around, you know, he's got two gun dogs like myself and he goes out hunting and it's that ability to really, um, I think, re- recalibrate the diner with actually that food does come from the wild and it comes from outside and, you know, this is what we are able to do. And I think, you know, with being a hunter, um, 
Vaughan has that view of, um, I guess, environmental, um, that sustainable environmental sort of um, conservationalist approach where you only take what you need but then you're honouring the produce as well and showing a lot of respect to the produce and then highlighting it and then using it as an education tool for diners, which is very close to my own heart as well. Um, and seeing what he's able to do and the team that he's got and everyone being so um, passionate about what they're doing and um, that it's never a dull moment either in that um, you're always up to something or Vaughn comes back in and he's gone on a hunt and there's a deer or that there's you know ducks in the back of the um, the truck that he's got and you kind of go, all right, cool. We're, um, we're going to be cleaning some, you know, spiker deer heads and seeing then how that then transforms and translates into the diner's experience. Like, for example, um, Pat Norse just went over there and they did this dish that they're still doing when I was there back in May, which was using deer milk to then recreate a deer antler. And so then you get presented as a diner the ice cream as a dessert, but it's actually on the um, skull of a deer and the antlers are edible and they um, drop, uh, they place it onto your plate and then they use a um, what's it, like a, a caramelized beetroot uh, sauce. So it then looks like the blood and bone, so to speak, um, but a little bit more um, elegantly said and put as well. Um, and I think that kind of re- it recalibrates the diner in terms of what what we actually do, where we actually sit within the grand scheme of food and, you know, apex predators and all that kind of stuff. But also then, um, you know, the fact that this is all very much so available just literally outside of Queenstown and um, being able to honour it and show it and showcase it um, and bring light to it as well. Oh, sounds so stimulating and thought provoking. I mean, do you think how what sort of place is there in contemporary dining for this sort of experience? Like, do you think there's going to be more of these sort of restaurants that um, are almost narrative driven, or do you think they're they're like? I think a lot of restaurants are already narrative driven and just in different ways. Um, I think different philosophies um, are a way of highlighting this but I think it's also if you're going to do that hunter gathering hunter gatherer approach I should say I you know that, that feasibility has always been really hard within Victoria based around legislation like little things like you know kangaroo meats technically classed as you know dog food in uh, in Victoria yet you can go to the abattoirs over in New South Wales over the Murray River and then that's completely fine for human consumption so I think there's a lot of and I think having spoken to Vaughan about it there's a lot of legislation le legislative changes that are required and more open-mindedness to be able to have more hunter-gatherer approach styled dining um, options particularly in Australia um, you see it a little bit more over overseas with, you know, game seasons being done over in, you know, the UK or over in, you know, Denmark, like where you'd literally have ducks getting dropped off to the back of your restaurant and you'd have to be, you know, plucking them and prepping them and then you'd be serving them. But over here in Australia, there seems to be a really high um, resistance to being able to implement such a thing. So... I think it's a journey, um, but I think it's also about, you know, that, that age-old argument of it comes down to education 
education to the general public, education to the diner, education to the staff, education to the, um, you know, the chefs. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for um, the the ways in which our grandfathers used to do things back overseas and, um, you know, they'd go out hunting for rabbits and then they'd use everything and wouldn't waste anything and, you know, pres- like fermentation and preservation and curing meats and all of that was a way of preserving what they had available to them. So, I, you know, everything kind of goes around in cycles, I think, is where it all ends up anyway. Yeah, well, I think um, it is very frustrating in lots of ways, uh, you know, the regulations that are ostensibly there to keep everybody safe certainly um, cut a lot of people off from accessible and abundant sources of protein particularly. But I suppose, yeah, if you look at the long, you know, not quite finished journey with with raw milk, cheese, I mean, I suppose it, it takes people who really, you know, avidly and consistently and over a long period of time do that huge job of education and campaigning and, um, yeah, bringing people along with them. Um, Yeah, uh, it is very frustrating, but I am heartened, Sarah, to at least hear, yeah, someone such as yourself talking about it with, you know, um, so articulately and and with, with such passion and experience from other places where you see it being done in a way that is um, thought provoking, but safe and presumably also delicious. That's it. The the holy trifecta or trinity, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Sarah, you've got lots going on. um, Yes. And I know you never do one thing at a time. So, tell me what else is on the horizon for you. Yeah, um, I've literally just found out that I've been accepted to the Mad Academy, which is beyond mind-blowingly, you know, insane and cool. And I'm yeah, just um, to be honest, I'm a little bit lost for words. It kind of hasn't sunk in, to be honest. Um, but yeah, as a part of the Host Plus scholarship, um, there's a learning and development section, uh, a component of it. And I said, look, I, if I could dream, I'd love to aim for the stars and get into the Mad Academy. And, you know, the chances are slim, but, you know, that whole approach of, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. So I put my hat in to be considered and found out uh, yesterday, yesterday in the wee hours of the morning that I'd um, been accepted to their um, leadership and uh, business vein that they offer. So that's going to happen in April this year. So that's really cool. Uh, congratulations. That's so exciting. So for people who don't know what, what the Mad Academy is, um, tell us about it and and tell us what you hope to get out of it. Yeah, so I suppose for me it's this global melting pot of being able to meet not only like-minded individuals sharing experiences and learnings, but it's also taking it to a global scale of best practice and being able to draw on industry forefront leaders as to, you know, ways in which they've shaped or changed what that norm looks like within the hospitality industry, like from, you know, the the operators of Favican going through um, actually unionizing their restaurant and changing their retention. And uh, I think the best retention rate they initially had was nine months and going through that unionization and well-being in the workplace, then being able to shift that then to the, the best retention they had was someone staying there for nine years and going through about how to find that balance between workplace and hours and all those sorts of um, things and kind of destigmatizing mental health, but then how to do it with um, 
you know, I guess having different metrics at the forefront. So like well-being rather than, you know, attrition versus um, retention rates and ways in which we can laterally problem solve through creating a global community. Um, you know, some of the, I guess, some of the practices that we're seeing and being able to implement not just best practice, but being industry leaders for changing, uh, being agents for change, I think, for this industry. I feel like that HR hat might be somewhere back in the cupboard <laughs> still. <laughs> yeah, there's still some very big HR buzzwords that fly around every so often. They generally get me into trouble, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I'm certainly, it, I'm certainly not saying it is a criticism. I think it's, you know, anything around human resources. I mean, what is hospitality but humans, you know, being resourceful? So I think... Um, yeah, it's so important to have to bring that lens to to what you do. I mean, you know, you you've told us that you it's the food that grabs you in, but I think for the people to be there to cook the food and, you know, people to be there to eat the food, um yeah, it all needs to to come together, doesn't it? It does. It's I think it's in a way it's you know, it's like having a family and you've got to find a way to make it work and you've got to find a way to you know, to um I think to empower people and to lead them, but a way in which that everyone wants to be there because there's a commonality or a common cause that sings to them. It might be the food philosophy. It might be the way that they do service. It might be, you know, the the hours that are offered to them. But I think it's about how do you find that kind of, how do you find that tribe, so to speak, and how do you find that little, that sweet spot as well? Mm. So we love to share wisdom or, you know, the wisdom of our guests on this podcast. And Sarah, what would you say to somebody who's thinking about a career in hospitality or wondering what next step to take? Perhaps they're feeling a little bit lost in their current role and, and wondering how to um, see a way forward. What what sort of words of wisdom do you have to share? Ask. Ask someone. Find someone that you, you find aspiring to or um, someone that you would like to pick their brain and, and ask them. And I think that's the thing that I've been really fortunate with, with some of the mentors that I've found along the way, was that um, if I wasn't sure, I'd always ask, if you've got a minute, can we catch up for a beer or for a coffee or something? I'd really like to just pick your brain on something. Or I'm, I'm kind of at a, at a juncture or I'm a bit lost and I don't know what to do or I'm thinking of um, – you know, going down this vein, do you mind if we can catch up and have a bit of a, a talk and flesh it through with someone that's you know, been in the industry for 20 years compared to my small tenure in the industry and kind of seeing their their words of wisdom. And I think I've been really lucky and I to find um, like-minded chefs and an old guard of chefs that have been extremely generous with their time and their learnings and you know, I've I've been fortunate enough to be able to share what little learnings I've picked up along the way with a couple of people. But I think that would be my advice to someone else is to be hungry, um, to find something that grounds you, but then to ask is it if it's to ask for help or ask for guidance, but to ask as well and not to be afraid of asking. Because as you've said, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Oh, you know, how hard can it be? And then you kind of get thrown into the bowels of the beast. But ask. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And do you have a sort of horizon, you know, something that you're working towards yourself? I think like everyone else, um, I'd like to do something of my own eventually. Um, 
what it looks like, I'm not too sure. I know what I would like it to have involved in terms of, you know, a holistic local community engagement, um, you know, focusing on things like well-being and, you know, education of the staff and being and being an employer of choice. And I think the thing that kind of I find so confusing is that we're meant to, as an industry, we're always finding people and finding the next contemporary thing, fascination, be it what you will call it. But then, you know, the some of the industrial um, awards that we have to use that govern us are quite backwards in a way. So things like, you know, you know we have same-sex relationships now and we have people that are transgendered or, you know, we have so many different melting pots in this microcosm of a society in our businesses and in our industry and yet our award doesn't support that. And I think for things like me, it sounds... It sounds really trivial, but I'd love to have somewhere of my own that I could change it from having maternity leave and paternity leave to primary caregiver and secondary caregiver because that that removes the gender uh, association around you know that that uh, family whatever what whatever that family looks like, but it, it removes that gendered family dynamic and little things like that I think and maybe that's a bit of my HR background coming through, um, but I think it's about investing into that next generation, which is what I'd like to be able to do, be it through foraging or through, you know, going spearfishing with them to then putting them through wine training or if there's something that I could do to share my knowledge or share my experiences, then that's what I would like to be doing in my own sort of space eventually, be it what it will. But mm. um, that's that's the pipeline anyway. So, yeah, it's, it's just to see. It's the journey that takes you there as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that. I love everything you've said. And I think, you know, we know that language is is so powerful and, um, yeah, words can make people feel seen and they can also make people feel excluded. And I think when you're talking about longevity and retention and, and welcome, then I think the way that we, um, yeah, f- frame leave or working conditions, it's really important. So, yeah, love, love that. Um, Sarah, what are you loving cooking at the moment? What would you What would you feed me if I came to Moke? Oh, at Moke, I think it, we've been doing this really cool. This week, we've been doing this really cool dish, and my, uh, Chef Michael's going to hate me for it. But we've been doing a humble roast chicken, um, chicken and gravy. But it's been awesome. It's been. Um, we've been doing a um, tuna um, that's been really finely sliced over some pickled cherry tomatoes. Um, then the next course would have been a rock flathead with parmesan crust and a burblanc sauce. And then it would have been the humble roast chook um, with gravy. But it's been absolutely delicious. And that's probably what I would have been cooking for you at the moment at Moke. Love it. Well, um, I'm so overdue a visit to Moke. And, I, you know, I think Michael's such an impressive chef Uh you know, I followed his journey at the Boku's door where he represented Australia. Um, is certainly no stranger to hard work, um, that person. Uh, so I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you have some pretty amazing um, times in that kitchen, and there's no shortage of big dreams either. Um, yeah, yeah, love it. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm. Definitely got to come. So I'm not, it doesn't matter if it's not the chicken, but I'm looking forward to uh, enjoying what both of you are creating there. Uh, Sarah, such a pleasure to chat to you. Um, 
yeah, like stay in touch. I definitely want to hear about the Mad Academy and everything else that you've got going on. But thank you so much for sharing some time with us today. No, absolute pleasure, Danny. I would love to keep in touch and would love to share what it's been like post Mad Academy and I guess where the world kind of leads me from there on in. And I will never forget that we first encountered each other over <laughs> Jerusalem artichoke dessert. There you go. There you go. The humble, the humble Jerusalem artichoke. Yes, long may she reign. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Absolute pleasure, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.